Welcome to episode four of Rush Limbaugh, the man behind the golden EIB microphone. If you haven't heard episodes one through three, you can always go back and listen to those exclusive stories from people who knew Rush on and off the air, including Dawn and Brian, who were with Rush and me in the EIB Southern Command studio every day for more than 20 years. But today, we have a very special episode for you. We have a chance to hear from Rush's brother, David Limbaugh. Now, I've known David for a very long time, decades. And David and I are friends. And I want to tell you something about David. And this is very touching to me. And it's something that I will always remember. When the, the day, that day, that Rush gave us the bad news about his diagnosis, it was a very tough day. I got a call. Um, before the show ended that day from David. And David just said, James, I'm just calling to see whether you're all right. We're all worried about you because we know how much you love Rush. Of course, I broke down. And of course, you know, David was was just as emotional as David can be under those kind of circumstances. We were all just on the edge and, and, and that's who David is. And, and that's who this family is. I knew Rush and David's mom, Millie, and I hung out with Millie. And I rocked David's, one of David's daughters to sleep while we were all traveling somewhere with Rush to, to on, on one of our great traveling adventures. I don't even remember where we were going, but I just remember hanging out with them. You hear this expression, the salt of the earth. The Limbaugh family, I've met so many of them. These people are the people that you would want to be your neighbors. They're the people you would want to be your friends. These are the people that you would want to be your family. And you'd be grateful if you were in their family. Not only do they love this country, not only do they love their family, they love their friends and they create an incredibly loving environment. And it is so easy for me to see where Rush came from by knowing his family. Whether you listened every day, you are at the EIB Network and the Rush Limbaugh program heard on over 600 great radio stations. Or every now and then. Nation's leading radio talk show, the most eagerly anticipated program in America. These are the stories you've never heard from the people behind the scenes who knew him best and loved him most. Rush Limbaugh having more fun than a human being should be allowed to have. Rush Limbaugh, the man behind the golden EIB microphone. Hosted by James Golden. Hey, James Golden here. You know what? It's time that you treat yourself to a little bit of luxury. You know the company. It's MyPillow. But what you may not know is that MyPillow makes more than just the incredible pillows that have captivated America. They make sheets. And these aren't just any sheets. These sheets are smooth. They're soft. They're comfortable. You'll look forward to getting under these sheets every night. I know I do. My Pillow Giza sheets have a luxurious feel you're going to love. Get yourself the luxury. Get a set of these sheets. They come with a 60-day comfort guarantee, pillows, sheets, 
Don't forget the incredible slippers from MyPillow. They're available from MyPillow. They have a level of comfort you need to experience. Log on to MyPillow.com. Click on the new radio listener specials and use promo code ICON. Lots of incredible offers there now. That's MyPillow.com, promo code ICON. Today, a special guest. We have with us David Limbaugh, Rush's brother. David, welcome. How are you? Hey, James. How are you doing? Thanks for having me on. I am so pleased that you're here David, how are you doing? I am still in a state of shock and disbelief. I wake up some days and I still can't believe it. When I hear Rush's voice, I'm, I'm still part of my mind still can't wrap around that Rush is gone. Yeah, I, it is really um, very hard to believe. Uh, and, and it's tough. And I kind of compartmentalize sometimes and, and deal with it that way. But I was very surprised the way it hit. I mean, we expected him and we knew it was, it was going to happen, but I didn't think it was imminent. And then when Catherine called and said he had really taken a turn for the worst, my heart sunk. And then it was downhill from that point. So yeah, I was kind of shocked, even though we had been well prepared for it. Yeah. So David, I want to go back with you today to the beginning of David, the younger brother. I want to know what life was like in the Limbaugh household. I have I have had the wonderful opportunity of meeting your mom. I never met your dad, but I met your mom, and she was such a wonderful and delightful person. She had sparkling blue eyes. She would send me music. I don't know whether you know that or not. She would send me cassettes with music. Oh yeah. Yeah, that she wanted me to hear. She had an infectious laugh. She was just such a wonderful person. What was it like growing up in your house? Well, my mom and dad were both unique characters in their own right. Very different. Uh, my dad was a as I said in that tribute I wrote to Rush, he was a lawyer's lawyer and brilliant and uh he was pretty serious most of the time and had a worse bark than his bite. Uh, he he was tender at heart, but you know people sometimes people thought he was gruff. But the truth is he was he was really good to us. Uh, but he disciplined us. Don't get me wrong. And my mom was just a a cut up. She was a comedian and always funny and happy, and everybody loved her. And and everybody loved my dad too. Don't get me wrong. People would come over. This was the interesting thing. They would come over to our house when we were kids in high school, and people would. Our friends would sit around in the living room and just listen to my dad pontificate about politics and religion, mostly politics. And so it is it is gratifying to me to see Rush in his career put together both of the, the best attributes of my parents uh, and turn it into the most successful radio show in American history. So that's really cool to me. I see both my parents in Rush, the best of both of, both of them. And your granddad was still, Rush had your granddad on the air. Your granddad lived oh, to be over 100 years old. And he was active. He was still practicing law, right, when you were coming up? Oh, yeah. Uh, I uh, joined the firm in 1978. And my grandfather was still there, the patriarch. My dad was there. My uncle was there. My cousin Steve 
so a lot of Limbaugh's there at the time. In fact, our cousin John started out there too. So it was very Limbaugh heavy and there were some non-Limbaugh's there too. Uh, and my grandfather continued until probably 1993 or four when he was almost 104. He died at 104, but he practiced law almost until the very end. My dad died four or five years earlier than my grandfather. So my grandfather outlived him. And um, But my grandfather was amazing in terms of uh, how vibrant he was and how brilliant he was still at, at a very old age. Wow. Okay, so you kids, what kind, did, I, I look at my childhood and, and I contrast it to what I see kids going today. And I am so grateful to God that I had what I consider to be a normal childhood. You know, went to church, went to school, you know, two parents in the home. You know, we did things that most middle-class families did. You know, you go to the church picnics, you do, you know, I was a little mischievous in school and once in a while, and <laughs> and, and but it was normal. What was your childhood like? This sounds like a leading question based on information you have may have been supplied to you about our past. And I don't know whether or not to invoke the fifth or not at this point. I, I need to know what your intentions are. My intentions are. Are you with the FBI? Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> what was it like, David? That's all my intentions are. You, you and Russ are brothers. You're not that far apart in age. No, he's two years older than I am. Or he was two years older than I am. And uh, we were mischievous as kids. I mean, I, I mean, if I told some of these stories, I wonder if the statute of limitations uh, is still open on a few of the th felonies we committed. Uh, but, <laughs> I mean, we were we were really bad on prank phone calls. I mean, it was pretty much harmless stuff. And we were creative. I As I think I saw in one of these Steve Martin movies or uh, I can't remember the name of it. It, it. One of his daughters, who was mischievous, called it a dark gift. Well, she had nothing on us. We we were gifted. We had a dark gift for mischief, and we pulled pranks on people all the time. Send, we sent cabs to people's houses that that didn't order them. We ordered pizzas, then sent a cab for the pizza to uh, to pick up the pizza and take it to the people's house. We ordered cabs for residents addresses that were non-existent, and then we're we're sit, sitting in the houses by the. Uh, these non-existent residents and watch these cab guys perplexed. And try I mean, it was terribly mean in retrospect, but, you know, we we had uh, slowly formed consciences, consciences at the time. So that's my only excuse. But we, we had a lot of fun. What was your favorite one? If you had to pick, okay, your favorite two. There was, I, I wonder, I hope no one's still around that, that would have been a, a, a victim of this, but we, we uh, had a Know Your Bible contest and Know Your American History contest, so we would call people randomly out of the phone book and ask them uh, certain totally easy questions, and, and then they'd answer them, we'd get them right. And so we, we told them they'd win prize money, so we sent cabs to pick them up and take them to a certain hotel in town to pick up their prize money. Now, keep in mind that there was no contest there was no prize money. The cab people weren't in on it. So, I mean, it was it was pathetic how bad we were. But Did you ever get busted? Not for that. We, we got busted. I got taken to jail on Halloween for throwing balloons at people's cars. Rush was, Rush was not part of that misdemeanor. But uh, we were, 
eight kids uh, we were walking around and we threw i mean we didn't hurt anything we but we got we got taken to the police station but no we just we just had a lot of fun doing crazy stuff but most of it was not mischief i just say that because rush was so tickled about it talking about those things we did in later years but rush was very interested in baseball um and pursued pitching and and uh he was a good batter and and very good pitcher yeah now when you look back on it did you get any hints? Did you did you notice anything? Because Rush has talked before about when he started to call games, right, right, at, on using the, the the TV, turning the sound down on the TV and calling a baseball game, or the the uh, the Carvel toy with radio. Did you was that like con- were you conscious that something was going on there, or was it just kind of ah, he's you know. Well, it was, uh, we lived on Sunset, 412 Sunset in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. And I specifically remember that toy at that address. And it would, you could broadcast on the AM radio waves within the confines of your home. And so my mom and I would listen to Rush broadcast either as a DJ spinning records and, and giving his little commentary as he went or announcing uh, baseball games uh, as he watched it on, on TV and turning down Dizzy Dean or uh, whoever the, the baseball announcer was at the time. So, yes, and, and I think your question is, did we recognize his talent? At that time, when we were just really young, we probably recognized most his enthusiasm for it and his devotion to it. But when we moved over to the other house and he was 15, he went to – Dallas to take to get his radio license. I don't know the technical term. Yeah, that was the FCC license. Yes, and then he then he became a radio uh, disc jockey on the local station. He was really really talented, especially for his age. And people started noticing how gifted he was. We we did some tapes, kind of made a an audio movie, and they, it was just totally creative and hilarious. And Rush, Rush could do voices. He was a mimic, he was an impressionist. The first moment that Trump does anything that is the unraveling of an Obama agenda item, Obama's gonna be on TV. Hey, you know what, I wanna go on TV. I'm gonna grant you an exclusive. Trump, Trump's about to destroy Obamacare. Sometimes, you know, when I'm on a stage like this, I wish I weren't married, that I could say what I, what I really think. I don't mean that in a negative way. I'm happy. I'm happy. Wink, wink. You, you, you know what I mean. So what does my voice sound like to you? Do I, do I sound like Stephen Hawking or something? No. You sound like a union thug that's really ticked off at me. And if I don't say the right thing here, I might be in some trouble. Exactly right. Uh, and I, I know that, that people think he's brilliant because of the way he speaks. And people think people are brilliant. Because the way they speak, they say, uh, a lot, because that's how you make people think you're thinking when you're talking. And, uh, so, yeah, if I weren't married to her, <laughs> As you know, in each episode, we've been sharing the biographical journey of Rush's life, chapter by chapter, narrated by some of Rush's colleagues and closest friends. Today, well, this guy needs no introduction. Long-time listeners to Rush knew him as F. Lee Levin. Today, he's a huge star in his own right. Radio broadcaster Mark Levin. The Life of Rush Limbaugh, Chapter 4. Narrated by Mark Levin. 
Despite being fired from his first three jobs in radio, Jeff Christie, a.k.a. Rush Limbaugh, didn't stay down for long. He worked aggressively to return to the airwaves and by 1975, Landed the afternoon show at Top 40 KUDL in Kansas City. Still, Rush's time at KUDL was short-lived, lasting barely two years before he was let go. For the first time in his life, Rush had become disenchanted with radio. After serious thought, he chose to temporarily walk away from his dreams of a successful radio career. In 1979, Rush set a new career course, Major League Baseball. I, mean, I remember my father, when I when I quit radio, was the happiest he ever was. I quit radio at age 28 because I figured I'd burned out. I was playing records. The son, what does that mean? I mean, where's that going to take you? When I got that job at the Kansas City Royals making $13,000, he was happier than he had ever been. Rush's four years with the Royals were successful. It led to a lifelong friendship with Hall of Famer George Brett. After baseball, Rush returned to radio in 1983 as the afternoon news and sports anchor at KMBZ. Kansas City Radio, KMBZ. The first time in his career, he used his given name on the airwaves, Rush Limbaugh. But he even boasted to his general manager, quote, it's only a matter of time before you're going to fire me. Rush's prediction became his reality. And after less than a year at KMBZ, he was out. By 1984, Rush replaced Morton Downey Jr. in middays on KFBK in Sacramento. KFBK was a perfect fit for Rush, and he was soon dominating the market in his time slot. I finally got to do a radio show the way I wanted to do it, the things that I cared about, the things I thought people would listen to, and it was basically just sharing my passions. I love sharing my passions. I come up with things that are passionate, and I want everybody to know about it. I want everybody to experience it. I want everybody to agree. And it finally all came together for me in Sacramento, California. After three years of rating success in Sacramento, Rush left KFBK to become part of Ed McLaughlin's newly formed EFM Media Network. Still, his departure from KFBK was bittersweet. I'm just a guy on the radio. When I started this 30 years ago, I never envisioned any of this happening. What I wanted to become was the best radio guy in the country. I had this great opportunity. I could be me, I could be honest, I could talk about whatever I wanted to talk about, and there was nobody that could tell me I couldn't. And I have to, folks, I have to tell you, it is the, the greatest blessing that I've ever had is to have the opportunity I do each and every day. Born from the tragedy of 9-11, the Tunnel to Towers Foundation supports our nation's fallen and catastrophically injured service members, first responders, and their families. Thanks to your generosity, the Stand Up for Betsy Ross campaign, a $5 million donation was made to the foundation to honor dozens of heroes killed or injured in the line of duty, protecting our communities and our freedom. That's shocking. That's disorienting. That's life-changing enough. But then the prospect of losing a home and losing everything else and not knowing where to go next, helping to maintain the nest. To maintain the home is one of the great offers of security that people in these circumstances need, and you've made it all possible. Your help changed lives forever for the better. Now, I'm asking you to join Tunnel to Towers on their mission to do good for America's heroes and their families. Donate $11 a month at T2T. 
dot org. That's T, the number two, T dot org. So Rush was a disc jockey at a young age. He's a teenage disc jockey in Cape Girardeau. Did this lead to him being popular? Was he in the in crowd in school? How did that affect his life and and how did it affect the family's life? Well, Rush was never really into school and he was not that social at a young age. He was just a workaholic. He was so into his radio show uh, that that he worked all the time and he just loved it. And and, it was kind of a foreshadowing of what would happen. I mean, imagine having been diagnosed with terminal cancer in his final year, he gets his life energy, uh, of course, from the family and friends, but his primary source of energy and and motivation to live, in my opinion, was his love for his audience and and what he did Mm -hmm. uh, and, and his job. He loved doing what he did. And that was the case when he first started out. So while he would have been popular had he had, had his uh, priorities been there. He mainly just loved to uh, work, but he developed some friends in, in the class ahead of him. A few years later, when he was like 17 and 18, they, they took a particular interest in wrestling. He was more mature-minded than, and more serious. I mean, he's a comedian, don't get me wrong, but you know what I mean? He was, he's a serious-minded person in his real life. And so he, he's a guy who never wore blue jeans, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can never remember him wearing blue jeans. And these guys sought him out, these older guys, and they ended up becoming really good friends. They were at our house all the time, and I, I latched on to them like a little kid. But it was just fun having those guys around. And so Rush was extremely popular with them. And they looked up to him. They saw his talent uh, from an early age. But truthfully, before that, I think uh, he didn't have as big a social life because he was more into his work. And that, that, you know, it's almost like he was a mirror of his younger self from what you're describing. Yes, that is so true. Uh, and he always stayed true to himself. He, he did what he wanted to do. Uh, and luckily what he wanted to do was productive and wholesome. I mean, he wanted to be on the radio and he wanted to work hard. And, uh, and those are all uh, obviously good values. Uh, there's been a lot of, uh, you didn't ask me this, but I might as well anticipate it and answer it. People have said, well, your dad wanted him. He was probably disappointed because he didn't go to college and he didn't become a lawyer and all that. And my dad, like any parent back then, wanted us to go to college, but he never pressured Rush to go into law. My dad was not that way. He just believed that the the best avenue to becoming well-rounded for later success was college. You know, they, they butted heads about that because Rush saw no value in it. He knew he knew his own head. He knew his own heart. He knew he didn't want to do it. He did it on his own. He did it his way. My dad has been unfairly criticized for pressuring Rush to be a lawyer. He never did it. He never did it. He did want to keep him in school, and I think that was a reasonable thing. And even Rush would have said later, there's no way my dad could have anticipated that Rush would break all odds and be phenomenally successful not going the conventional route. So I, I think Rush, as you say, from the, from the time he was young until the time he died, knew his own head. And he, he was a reflection of, of his when, when he was an older person, he was a reflection of his younger person. But that's simply because he never changed. He always knew what he wanted and he went for it. Well, I want to talk to you about you for a few minutes, because you just said something 
about you knew what you wanted to do early on in life too. And you wanted to be a lawyer. And did you also want to be a writer? Because you're an accomplished writer. Between your writings on the political and cultural scene in America and your exceptionally gifted books on Christianity, you have carved out a real niche for yourself. Uh, interesting question. I, I, have, uh, I, I first want to acknowledge that, that regardless of how well I've done, I wouldn't have been able to uh, reach the levels I have, which are very modest compared to what Rush did. Not that I'm competing. It would be foolish to put myself in competition with him. But um, it, it would not have been possible it had Rush not opened those doors. Now, I was already a lawyer before uh, Rush got his syndicated show and all that. So I was doing fine. But he opened some doors for me in both my writing profession and my legal profession uh, that were just awesome. The opportunity to work on his radio contract and and, and th- th- then watching his success inspired me to want to become a writer, a better writer. And, um, hey, my brother's doing it. Maybe I, maybe I, I come from the je- same gene pool. Maybe I have enough talent to do, do a little bit better than I'm doing. So it was inspirational. And he was always supportive of that, as I, as I also said in the tribute. But you, 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 to answer your specific question, did I always uh, know that I wanted to do these things? I can give you tangible answers to that as proof that I did. One is I remember in, in Franklin School when I was in second grade, Mrs. Swink, our teacher, asked us to draw a picture of what, how we envisioned ourselves uh, working when we grew up. And I drew a picture of a courtroom. Wow. And I don't know why I remembered that all my life, but I just did. And, and I never deviated from wanting to become a lawyer. I always wanted to become one until I became one. <laughs> okay, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, I, I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it. But I, but I glamorized it all the way through. I, I was one of these weird guys that even liked law school because I just loved the study of law. Now, the practice of law, the general practice of law is a hard grind and very stressful and is not uh, as glamorous as you anticipate that it will be. But then if you can specialize and you get a better idea of what you're doing, then you feel better about it. And that's what I would recommend anyone to do. So I knew that I wanted to be a lawyer from an early age. And you asked me about writing. Well, I, I was a fanatic on the Hardy Boy books. I read all the Hardy Boys books. And Tom Swift was kind of a science fiction thing. Ken Holt, Rick Brandt, all these series, and they can go back and check. And I was a fanatical reader of those kinds of books. And uh, I was so into that, those books, that I started writing my own books. Although what I called a book was like seven handwritten pages. And I'd color them, the, the cover I would draw, and I had no talent to draw. But I, so I had like 45 books seven-page books, mystery books, and I call them the Wright Brothers. And I was obviously just imitating the Hardy Boys. But so, yes, from that age, I was probably in second, third grade when I did that. That's amazing. Did you read Nancy Drew? No, because I thought it would be a little feminine. So, no, I didn't. I always wondered about it, but I never. Some of our girlfriends. Nancy Drew was good. I know. I know it was good, but, you know, false pride. Yeah. False male. Now that I'm a full-blown feminist, I'd probably go back and read them. I read the uh, Hardy <laughs> Boys, the Bobsy Twins. I, I mean, I would read everything oh, yeah, in yeah. front of Yeah, all of that stuff. Tom Swift. The Tom Swift books were excellent. Yep. I had the whole series. Yes. Oh, oh, I got, a, I got an interesting tidbit about my dad to show you 
I, I don't know why, but when I, when I became an adult, I thought back on this story uh, and, and what it says about my dad. My dad was just a, he was, he was a voracious reader. I get distracted. It takes me longer. Rush is like my dad. He was a steel trap mind. And I'm not cutting myself down. I'm just saying the, Rush had my dad's ability uh, to read fast and to comprehend. Uh, one time when I was into the, I think I, it, I think it was Tom Swift's first book, like The Rocket Ship to the Moon or something like that. Uh, by the way, there are two Tom Swift series, one when my grandfather was a kid or, mm-hmm. and then when one we were a kid or, or maybe when my dad was. A kid. But I was so enthused about the book when I was reading it. I asked my dad if he would read it and then talk to me about it. Now, had I had one of my kids asked me to to rein in my ADD and read a kid's book at that time, I would have I would have faked it somehow. But my dad. I, I, I don't I, I got up in the middle of the night one time. I walked down the stairs and I walked into the living room where he sat in his rocking chair and he always had a card table in front of him. And he was reading in the middle of the night. He was reading that book. And uh, so he actually read the book. And I, I that was that in later years, that has been very touching to me to think about that. Wow. My my dad was in World War Two, but in um, flew uh P-51s, B-25s in the China-Burma, what they call the China-Burma Theater. And a good friend of his was also in the same place. And and uh, they wouldn't talk about it. Uh, my brother and I would, would ask, you know, we'd watch a war movie. It's kids on TV. What was it like? Wouldn't tell us. Uh, <clears throat> simply would not talk about it. Simply would not talk about it. Now let's jump ahead. You know, Russia had went through a series of jobs, yeah. but the big success had eluded him. He had been fired a few times. He, you know, and I'm sure that those were no one likes to get fired. So I'm sure he had to go through some grief with all of that. At one point, he left radio to work with the Kansas City Royals. And do you remember anything about those periods? You were off doing law. You guys are grown now. You're off in two different directions. Were you still in touch with each other? What was that like? Yeah, I think what you're getting at is 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 inquiring about the, his professional growing pains. And I would say yes, he definitely had them. He he knew again. He wanted to be in radio. But it's one thing to say he wanted to be in radio, and he knew that's where he belonged. And another to believe that it would end up happening because you can think you're the best person that ever lived at a certain uh, profession or skill and still not have the circumstances in life uh, develop and materialize to enable you to, to actualize your potential. And so I think through a series of firings and, and obstacles, he was getting pretty discouraged. He was not a person to adapt Again, it goes back. He's never really changed. He always wanted to be who he wanted to be, and that is a commentator. The, the, at the time, there wasn't, there weren't really even any talk shows. Not just political talk shows. There just weren't any talk shows that I remember. But Rush always wanted to comment. So when he when he did when he spent, spun records for these shows, he would always comment. And he and it was funny and he was talented. But that was not his job description. So these program directors invariably got irritated with him and told him to curb it down. That was not what he was supposed to do. And invariably he would disobey because that he knew that's where, that's where his destiny was. Not because he was 
intrinsically insubordinate. That's not why he got fired. He got fired because uh, he just did what he he thought he was born to do. Not that he thought through this philosophically, but he kind of just did what he did. When he'd get fired a few times, then he'd talk to my dad and mom and, okay, let's go the conventional route. So he'd work for the Royals and I think he enjoyed it okay, but he's mostly bored. He, he was director of group sales and he sold tickets and he was really good at what he did, but it was just not for him. And so he was just looking for a way out and he'd get, he'd get opportunities and he would go and get fired again. It wasn't until uh, he was, and you've heard this story, it wasn't until he went to Sacramento that some program director finally let him be himself. And then he just flourished like a rocket ship. It was explosive. I mean, I went out there uh, to, to Sacramento to see Rush, and he took me to a Lions Club luncheon that he was the invited speaker because he was already a big celebrity in Sacramento. And I had no idea. I had no idea he was a celebrity, really, because he didn't brag about it. He just, he just did what he did. I think he might have taken me there with the hidden purpose of letting me see just how talented he was. And I went there and I'm sitting there and go, I can't, I don't think I've ever heard a better speaker in my life. And I'm going, wow, I'm blown away by my own brother. But when we were growing up, we didn't do a lot of talking. We did a lot of listening. My dad was the talker. And so I didn't particularly know that Rush was as uh, talkative as he was capable of being when he got on the air. And I think this is true of a lot of celebrities. They say Johnny Carson was a little bit shy in his personal life. Rush wasn't shy, but he wasn't a, a real talkative person. I mean, he was one-on-one, but he wasn't the guy guy that would go just be the life of the party and entertain people. But when, when he got on the air, he lit up, as you know. When I was with him at that Lions Club luncheon, my, my jaw was dropping at how talented he was. It's not that I didn't know he was smart. I just hadn't seen that side of him. And uh, it's, it's funny because, you know, I saw that side of him the, next, the rest of his life after that. So, David, now let's jump to New York. And the next thing you know, he's becoming a household name. Were you surprised by any of this? What was the reaction inside your family, your extended family as well as, you know, uh, the family? Well, I think. And I remember this, and I could be off by one or two, but I think Rush started with 56 stations. That's right. The sheer talent uh, is what led to the to the explosion of the number of stations. And, and within a matter of years, I don't know how many years, he was up to 600 stations, and he held them uh, for the rest of his career. My mom, I will say, my mom was always his biggest supporter, and she was so thrilled with with his success, she always knew how talented he was, and it was just extremely uh, gratifying for her to see it. My dad was more of a skeptic because, again, he, my dad, I think, had this preconceived notion that to succeed, you had to, to go through the traditional route, college and all that. And he, he was slow to realize that Rush had broken through. But once Rush did break through, my dad was blown away. I'm not saying my dad wasn't a big supporter of Rush, but he wasn't as predisposed uh, to it happening the way it happened. And I remember, and you might have heard this story or read it in one of the various uh, biographies of Rush, where my mom and dad are sitting around while Rush is being interviewed by Ted Koppel on the, what was it? Not the, what do you call that? Nightline. Yeah, Nightline. And, um, he Rush made some 
profound, articulate response to something Ted Koppel asked him. And Rush turned my, my dad, Rush and I always called my dad affectionately Rush. So Rush, our dad turned to, oh, to each other, not to him. <laughs> we wouldn't have dared do that. But, <laughs> but <laughs> so he, he uh, turned to my mom, Millie, where does he get this? In other words, can you believe how talented he is? And my mom turned to him and says, well, you, silly. And, and, the, and the answer was, of course, that he got it from both of them. But, but it was my way of my, it was my dad's way of rhetorically affirming just how great Rush was. And that was just a cool turning point, I think. And I'm glad that Rush got a chance to actually know that, you know. Yes. And, and to understand that, that his parents knew, both of them, and, and, and the, the extended family, too, knew this talent. How was it for you? Because all of a sudden, here you are, your brother's famous. It's not, and fame is a double-edged sword. It's not just the good stuff. It's all the horrible stuff that comes along with being famous. And that stuff impacts the family, too. What was it like? Well, it's interesting. I, when he was in Sacramento... And I'm just a, a general practitioner of law. He he asked me to review his uh, contract, his radio contract. Well, I didn't know anything about radio contracts, and he wanted trust me enough to do it, even though I had no expertise in it. And when he did his, when he was asked to do his syndicated show, he asked me to do the contract. Well, I had no clue about the business aspects of of syndication, but I remember. Uh, I think I spent 12 hours preparing that contract to submit to Ed McLaughlin and his lawyer. His lawyer was Howard, Howard Abrahams, really good guy, and New York lawyer. I hadn't dealt with any New York lawyers, and I prepared that contract. And and so that was really cool that Rush brought me in. I was a little intimidated, a little nervous. But I will tell you, in terms of how it affected me, his fame affected me, uh, multifaceted. But one one thing I remember, I was so excited when – he finally inaugurated his national show out of New York. And uh, he, I, I remember driving in town. I went, I, I went out in my car to listen to the radio. And when I was so excited, when he came on, I, I got goosebumps. I said, that's to me, I, nobody was with me. I said, that's my brother. I said, that is so cool. And so I was ecstatic. Uh, about his success, so proud of, of what he had done and what he was doing. And I thought, wow, you know, all, and I even said to Ed McLaughlin, I said, I, there's no reason, and just what Ed said, there's, it's, there's no reason what he did in Sacramento won't translate to the rest of the country. There's no way it won't. I mean, I was convinced. Once I heard him in Sacramento, I knew. And so I was, I was so supercharged uh, with that. Now, that's the upside to, to it. The negative, a negative side of this, a potential negative side in what he did was he was very controversial on politics. Well, I happen to believe exactly like he believes politically. And so anytime anybody would would give him grief over that, I was just defensive, uh, a protective on, on his behalf. And if they would go after him, I would I would be very upset about it. Uh, but it never bothered me in the sense, oh, this is going to hurt our reputation, our family's reputation, because he's controversial. No, I was totally proud uh, of, of what he was doing, because I think he was making a difference and, and mainstreaming conservative thought. I mean, Bill Buckley, of course, is the, the father of the modern conservative movement. I'm not talking about Russell Kirk and all these intellectual people, but Buckley brought it, uh, 
brought the uh, conservative movement to the forefront, and then Rush brought it to the mainstream in what he did. But the downside to me, seeing him be savagely attacked and scapegoated, that deeply bothered me through the years, personally. And that's where he that's where he did. He finally just said, I've got to do my own thing and I'll do it well. I can't I can't be all things to all people. And he ended up being one of the most charitable people, celebrities or people, period. And in fact, as a as a collateral point, he wasn't just charitable with charities. He was so generous with the family, with other people, with fans. Uh, he gave gave away so many things. He, he's he's been so generous to me and my family. And sometimes he would offer stuff so much that you'd feel guilty. And then I, I finally realized I got to not make this about me because it's one of his greatest joys is giving things away that he likes himself, such as his uh, Apple products. And so if he wanted to give me four watches, I, I was, ah, uh, you know, I can't. I, I, finally, I said, okay, give them all. So one time he gave me four four Apple Watch. This is hilarious. I mean, it's it's disgraceful if, you, if you're a non-capitalist. But he gave me four watches, and I put them all on my wrist. This was like a year before he died. Put every one of them on. They were different colors. I took a picture of them and sent it to him. So here I'm wearing all the watches, and he just loved it. I mean, he, he you saw it. Didn't he give you those phones all the time and the iPads and watches? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. He was so generous and just and he loved being generous with the people that he loved. And it's just, you know, he was amazing. First off today, happy birthday to my brother, David. He turns 11 today. No, no. This is the 11th. He t- <laughs> it's his birthday. Is he 65 today? And he doesn't look a day over... I'm telling you, 40. Really doesn't. So happy birthday, Dave. Nicknamed Doc. I gave him a brand new iPhone 10, my brother, for his birthday. About uh, two or three weeks ago, so I wouldn't forget it. So I wouldn't forget it. So, David, time is dwindling down here, sadly. And I want to ask you one question. What's the one thing about Rush as a person that very few people know or people would be surprised to hear about him. Is there anything that comes to your mind? I'd have to think about this. I'm never good at these open-ended questions like that, but I would say he was not an extrovert uh, in his private life. I was even surprised uh, when I first started seeing him display his talent and how he would light up uh, in front of an audience. I just never saw, I mean, I saw glimpses of that when he would perform on the radio and all that, but I had no idea the extent to which uh, he would become not a different person, but a more open person. It's an interesting paradox to me that he he does he didn't open up to that many people in his private life. Now, a lot of times, by the way, he would open up to me when we were younger and have a girl problem, we'd share these issues. What do you think of this? Does she still like me? Does she not like me? So he would open up to me, and I'm sure to his real close friends. But on the air, I think you would agree that he considered his audience intimate, and he would tell them his deepest, innermost thoughts. And I don't know about you, I think that is so cool. And I think that's one of the things that has made him uniquely popular 
among his audience that developed a bond. And, and since he's died, I have received thousands of communications, emails, Twitter um, messages, uh, Facebook, personal letters, unbelievable numbers of people who would say, who do say, I loved him. I feel a personal void. He was the best friend I never met. Now, this is sounds like a cliche unless you read. They're not just saying, oh, I loved your brother passively. No, they're saying, I feel wounded. I feel a hole in my heart that he died. It is an active, present-centered, deeply abiding love that he generated with millions of people. I mean, I remember being in the studio the day a guy called in and tried to explain it all. And he just ended up, he he ended up in tears and ended up putting us in tears when he said, I just need to hear your voice. I know. Because it had become that much of a comfort to just hear his voice. And, and people try to figure out why he was so successful. You, you just can't put it in a easy, definable box. He had so many attributes that went into that final product. And I think a lot of it had to do with, with his personality, his openness, his love of his audience, his love for what he did, his intelligence, his wit, uh, his genuine interest, fascination with politics, and his uncanny, I would say, unparalleled insight into politics, as he used to talk about uh, laughingly being able to see the stitches on the fastball. Well, that is a great metaphor. He could see the stitches on a fastball. Maybe I should add to this that so many people who don't get it, see, they just don't get it. And these are not the ones who ended up being his fans, are the people who think he was full of himself, that he was a megalomaniac, that he was a, a narcissist because he would brag all the time. That was all shtick. Don't get me wrong. He knew he was talented, but when he was talking about his talent, it wasn't to brag. It was just to be over the top, ridiculous, and, and just to be a performer. And, and it stuck those kind of things. And people that understood Rush understood that he was saying these things tongue in cheek, even though at the same time, he did know he was very talented, but that wasn't the reason he was saying it. He was saying it just for bluster and just to be, but he didn't. Here's what bothers me. He never said, other than when he was joking and putting people on uh, for a, a routine, he always said what he believed. So you read these stories and they say he's bombastic and he wasn't bombastic. And that's another thing, by the way. He might have started off being a little bigger than life, but as, as, as his show evolved in, in these later years, they, they talked about him being mean. Have you ever heard him be mean to a caller? No. I, it's the most unfair thing. And this crap about him being a racist, I, I just, I just, it blows my mind. He was the tip of the spear. He took the arrows for all of the rest of us and for the country. And people now are taking some of the heat. He took it before all the rest of us, and he had no one defending. I mean, we all tried to defend him. There was no mechanism to defend him. And he was the toughest guy I've ever seen, not just in the way he fought cancer and bounced back and powered through that last year, but his whole career. Who could be deaf and be a radio host? And he overcame that. He overcame addiction. He overcame all the obstacles that were placed in front of him and, and all the hate from Media Matters and the rest. And he powered through bigger than every one of them to be the most successful person that I've ever met in my life and that everyone, at least on our side, ended up loving. And I am really, really proud of him and really miss him. David, thank you. Me too. 
And David, I'm happy that you shared and you, and 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 those people that are listening to our podcast series got a chance to know a little bit more about you too. And aside from all of the other accomplishments as an author, as a columnist, and as a great guy, you are one of the nicest, most incredible men I've ever met. It runs in the family. Thank you. So are you just so I I, I don't want to affirm everything you say and come across as conceited. I don't think I am and this isn't false modesty. I have been so blessed. I don't think I'm particularly gifted in any of those areas that I've done, but I, I hope that I've done as well as I could do in, in the uh, with the opportunities that I was given. It's an honor to represent the people I've represented, but I will repeat, none of that would have been possible without Rush. I wouldn't have had the confidence to do it, nor would I have had the opportunity. And the fact that, that I have, the fact that he wanted me to, and opened doors for me and tried to get me to and to encourage me in my career, both careers, writing and in law, shows what kind of selfless person he was. Just another aspect of his selfless, selflessness and brotherly love. So thank you for the compliments, but I, I realized how if I had not had the, these boosts and these opportunities, it would never have happened. I'm just grateful for everything that has happened. And thank you for your kind words on that. All right, David. Thank you so much. We'll talk, my man. Love you, David. Thank you so much. Thank you. You too. Love you too. So have no fear. My brother, noted columnist, attorney, broadcast agent, audio video expert, sent me a little note last night and said, are you okay? Are you, are, how are you holding up? I said, well, what? Because it was about 930 he said, well, all this demonization. I said, I, what demonization? I haven't seen any tonight. Oh, it's all over the place. I said, well, I haven't had the television on. I've been doing other things. God love him. My little brother, David. Thanks for listening to episode four. My very special thanks to Rush's brother, David. Now, on our next episode, you're not going to want to miss this. It was a very special moment in the life of not only Rush, but Rush's fans. The night Rush was awarded the Medal of Freedom by President Trump. Sean Hannity joins me to discuss that night on our next episode. It was a night that surprised all of us, including Rush himself. Rush Limbaugh, the man behind the golden EIB microphone, is produced by Chris Kelly and Phil Tower, the best producers in America. Production assistants, Mike Mamone, and the executive producers, Craig Kitchen and Julie Talbot. Our program, distributed worldwide by Premier Networks, found on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. This is James Golden. This is Bo Snerdly. This is James Golden. I'm honored to be your host for this and every single episode of Rush Limbaugh, the man behind the Golden EIB microphone. Thank you for being with us.